0: All right. Um, so, if you want to open your Bibles, you're, you're probably going to need them. You might need them, just depending on time, a couple of different things that we might uncover. To First Samuel, the vast majority of what we're going to be looking at is in uh, chapter 15 of First Samuel. So, you can open there, First Samuel 15, um, and uh, we're going to go through the biggest parts of this of this uh, of this chapter. Uh, at least the most important parts of this chapter. Um, last week, what we saw was that um, Saul was sort of depicted as this kind of scoundrel who's waiting on a hill, and the Philistine armies are encroaching upon them, and Saul is not really sure what to do, and so he sits there and just, just waits, really. Uh, all his men have left, or a lot of his men have left. He's got about 600 left, and he, he's not sure that he can do what he needs to do in fending off the Philistine army, the ferocious Philistines, uh, with just the 600 men. They don't seem to have any weapons or anything like that except for Saul and Jonathan. And so it just doesn't seem like a, a, uh, the right kind of matchup. The odds are not in his favor, as it were. And so he doesn't want to wage war. And so he kind of sits back on this hill. Jonathan, on the other hand, takes a different approach. Jonathan looks at his armor bearer and says, Well, let's go. Let's see what they got. And surely the Lord's going to take care of us. And so he and his armor bearer walk up to 20 Philistine men and just kill them right there on top of the hill. It creates this massive confusion that the Lord sends upon the Philistines. They go scattering hitherto and yon. Saul is still kind of ambivalent about getting into the fight and eventually decides to, goes into the fray and then makes a foolish vow for his army and says they can't eat anything until they drive out all the Philistine, the Philistine army that, that's there. And everybody seems really hungry and about to faint. And so some of the army takes it into their own hands to just kill an animal out in the wild and just without even draining the blood, just eat it because they're so starving. Jonathan doesn't hear Saul's vow and takes his staff, puts it in some honey and eats it. Um, so this brings death upon his head. And eventually the army speaks up on behalf of Jonathan and says to Saul, you've got to be crazy if you think you're going to kill Jonathan, your only, your son here, uh, and the Savior of Israel. That's ridiculous. We're not going to do that. And so uh, they talk Saul out of it, and so we move on. But when we get into chapter 15 of 1 Samuel, there is a big change that takes place because chapters 15 all the way to 31, which is the end of the book of 1 Samuel, is a new section entirely where Saul is going to so badly lose the kingdom that God's replacement is at hand God's replacement is 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 now we're going to we're going to find him now we saw this a couple of chapters ago in 13 where Saul lost the kingdom but he lost it his kids were not going to sit on the throne that was the kind of the promise it's torn away from you your kids are not going to sit on the throne but now 15 changes things a little bit where David becomes, or the scene is set, as it were, for David. And we're going to see how that happens in, um, in chapter 15. But you'll notice if you look in, uh, at the end of uh, 1 Samuel, there in 14, at the end of the sa- 1 Samuel 14, there in 47 and 48, there's this, we get these sort of mixed reports. So last week we saw Saul looks kind of like an idiot just sitting on a hill. And kind of a coward, really. And then we get in 47 to 48, we get this report, which seems a little different. Somebody read that out loud there, the first verse. So if you're just reading through 1 Samuel you kind of have these mixed emotions about Saul, don't you? you at first you read about him and he seems kind of like a coward sitting on a hill and Jonathan is the one doing most of the work it seems like or the one that's the more valiant trusting in the Lord. But then you get this summary statement here at the end of chapter 14 which really kind of ends the section on Saul and it says you know, he, everywhere he goes he routes the enemy. Well, if, if that's me, I'm thinking, oh, that's pretty good. That sounds like what you really want in a king, and that honestly sounds like what Israel was expecting when they got the king in the first place. We want a king so that he'll drive out the enemies in front of us. Well, what more could you ask of Saul, really, than what he is accomplishing in 47 and 48? Well, there's not much more that you could ask of him. He's everywhere he goes. It says Moab, the Ammonites, the Edomites, the kings of Zobah, the Philistines, the Amalekites, everywhere he goes, he's driving out. He's not just driving, he's routing them. I mean, he is. What more could you possibly want from Saul than that? In fact, for the Israelites, that's the vast majority of what they do want. And it seems as though that everywhere he goes, Saul is expanding the kingdom of God through the nation of Israel, as it's expressed through the nation of Israel. This is what Israel is supposed to do when they move into the land in the first place is drive out all the enemies well here Saul seems to be accomplishing all of that but as we take a look at the sort of the report it's meant to be two-sided you're meant to see two sides of the coin on the one hand Saul is sort of a coward sitting on a hill while his son goes and does the fighting and he doesn't have the faith to wage war against the Philistines yet then on the other hand he mounts an army we're going to see it's much bigger than 600 coming up. It's much, much bigger than 600. We're gonna, he's actually going to have a, a right proper army now in chapter 15, actually going after people. And so there's another side of Saul that um, he, he is going to fight and he is going to drive out the people that are in front of him. And he does have a little bit of fighting courage now, it seems like here in chapter 15. But what we find when we start looking at the enemies of Saul is that when we see the enemies of Saul, it's not just the Ammonites, it's not just the Moabites, it's not just the Edomites or the Philistines, it's not just the Amalekites. Saul himself is also an enemy of Saul. Saul is his own worst enemy. Um, So one of the biggest problems with Saul is that as as you watch the story, while he has these military successes and he does have good accomplishments on the battlefield, he has some things to add on his resume, he doesn't obey the covenant God. It's obvious, as you read it, he does not submit to God in any way. Um, And it turns out, this is the most important thing. It's really not anything else. It's that he doesn't submit to God. In fact, you could have a lot less wins on your resume. That's true. You could have a lot less wins on your resume, but if you submit to the covenant God, you're a success story. For Saul, it's exactly the opposite. He doesn't want to submit, yet he does have wins on the battlefield. Um, The biggest enemy, obviously... Uh, existential or, or biggest, uh, that's probably not the right word, the biggest uh, enemy outside of Saul is the Philistines. That is very clear. The Philistines have, uh, they don't have one king over them all, and really never had. The Philistines are these individual city-states, but yet when it comes time to fight, they were, they were good fighters. They were, they were really good fighters. When it came time to fight, All the kings of the cities gather together and they sort of uh, cast their vote whether or not they'll actually go into battle and they join forces and go. And so the Philistines were a mighty force when it came to battle, but then when they dispersed and they went back to their homes, they kind of governed themselves in their little cities, in their little territories. But as a result of that, they had not, uh, as a a nation, they're not really congealed. And so what that means is they move into territories and they sort of just exist there like parasites in the land. So you've got a big group of Philistines that, that lie on the coast near the Mediterranean Sea, and then you've got a lot of Philistines that just have little encampments throughout the land. And we saw this a couple of chapters ago where they're actually camped out very near Gibeah, which is the capital city at this moment, where Saul has kind of his home base, where he's from. He knows the land. It's sort of his home territory. And so the Philistines have actually had an encampment there. They've had outposts in several uh, different places because they're not necessarily one nation uh, in, in in that sense. They're kind of uh, amorphous, they kind of move and and change and 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 that kind of thing, which makes them particularly pesky for the Israelites. So they've got the Philistines have fortifications all throughout a bunch of different territories, such as Beth uh, Shan, the Plain of Jezreel. We'll see this on a map in just a second. But they've got fortifications all throughout Israel in the midst of uh, Israel's heartland, so to speak. Um, and as we saw in chapter 10, verse 5, they've got uh, a, a little outpost there near Gibeah. In fact, the Philistines were so pesky that it's not until 10 years or so, or a little bit after 10 years into David's reign, that the Philistines are more or less contained. Now, the Philistines' main locations are their, their biggest cities. They're always referred to throughout the Old Testament uh, five cities: Ashkelon, Ashdod, Ekron, Gath, and Gaza. You've heard of Gaza, okay? If you lived in Israel, you would have heard of the other four as well. They're still very much around. Um, in fact, you've heard. We've talked about this a number of times. We refer to two groups in Israel to this day: the Palestinians is one of them. That's the, that's the Philistines. It's the same word. So, in fact, what we know about the Philistines is that they've morphed over time. They started off as one group. We'll call them the Old Philistines. They existed back when Abraham was roaming around the land, Uh, back when Moses, before even Moses was coming out of the land of of Egypt. um, They were there in the territory. In fact, when they're coming out of the Exodus, they don't want to go up by the coastline, because of this warring group, which is the old Philistines. Well, the old Philistines was a a group of probably different people, we think, but then they changed over time to the new Philistines that we're seeing now, where they kind of settled in that territory around 1200 uh, BC, so after the Exodus and after all of that. So they're in that territory afterwards. So they've kind of changed a little bit. Well, today we've got really a new group of Philistines, essentially, and guess what land they occupy? It happens to be the same land. Uh, the Gaza Strip, you got uh, Ashkelon, Ashdod, uh, all of those are still cities today, and they're still occupied by what, what Israel, Israelites call the Palestinian threat, right? So they're still there. It's still an ongoing battle. It's a different group. It's changed a little bit, but they're still referred to essentially as Philistines, um, they're, and they're still living in the land. So we've got uh, that group, though. After lasts throughout is a pest is a pest through Saul's reign and doesn't become contained really until uh, several years into David's reign before he finally puts the uh, kibosh, so to speak, on that uh, the Philistine threat. So they've got fortifications everywhere and they're really um, pesky. There's so you've got Saul is his own enemy. You've got. The Philistines, which are an enemy that exists out there on the coastlands mostly and then have some territories throughout the land. And then you've got the Amalekites. should come up. Oh, I I forgot I have a map. Let me get a map here. Um, So the Philistine threat is here uh, on the coastland. You've got Gaza, Ashkelon, Ashdod. um, Gath is going to be up here. It's not labeled on on the map, but it's up here. Um, then you've got is the kingdom of Israel, uh, the kingdom of, of, this is the best map that I could find. There's not a proper kingdom of Judah just yet, but, uh, this'll be fine for now. This is going to be the, is basically Israel's territory. You've got the Ammonites over here to the east. You've got the Arameans. I don't know what happened. That works. I don't, I, I don't, I didn't do anything, so I don't know what. I didn't touch anything. It's uh, Somebody, hold your mouth. Hold your mouth. Right. Look. Got. Do we get the rabbit ears? Somebody. I don't know why it did that. Well, there we go. I'm just going to have to spell it out. Um, hope you took a photographic picture of that in your mind. Uh, sorry. Let me know if it pops back up. I don't know what to do about that. You can go. You can go back there and see if you can fix it. But. Sorry, hit go hit some buttons and see if you can switch it around. There it goes. Hey, look, it's up. Thanks, Blake. Just stay there and keep, hold up the tin foil on the, you know, do a, yeah, they, y'all never had to get up and actually change the channel, did you? We just saw it, <laughs> just saw it in movies. Uh, <laughs> <it hurt. laughs> uh, old movies like you've got mail right I mean like ancient movies uh, <laughs> those old color movies um, <laughs> the ones not on blu-ray um, all right so another another enemy is the Amalekites I'm almost scared to change it but um, yeah <laughs> okay let me see if I can go back to the map There it is. All right. Okay. It was it was- yeah, yeah, so strong. It just, uh, so you've got, you have Israel, Philistines. Uh, over here, you have the Arameans, who are also listed in this text as a threat. The Arameans um, are, are going to battle with the Assyrians over the course of this time. The Assyria, for the Assyrians, the Arameans are like their Philistines. They're just a pest. And um, the, the Assyrians just cannot seem to get rid of the Arameans. And at some point, the Arameans are actually going to take over uh, and occupy a lot of Assyria. Um, but th- so they're, they're going to be a threat. Um, the Ammonites over here to the east, the Moabites over here to the southeast, and the kingdom of Edom is going to be down here to the south. That's also going to be a pest um, to the Israelites. But notice now, we talked about for a long time, as they're walking into this land, there was no real threat. They were able to walk in and kind of occupy the land. Now that they have a king, what do you see? You see a lot of territories beginning to rise up, a lot of kingdoms beginning to rise up and pose a threat outside of the land to the nation of Israel. And so there's going to be a test coming as to whether or not Israel can actually follow the Lord and listen to his commands. So uh, Saul, as it, it, it seems, is having a pretty successful campaign, a, su- a successful go of it. And he's driving out a lot of these enemies. And he's, do- he's waging war with the Philistines. And he's got quite a bit of an army. Um, but the, uh, what we're also going to see is the Amalekites are a huge threat. And we're going to see that in this text tonight, that the Amalekites are a, a huge threat to the nation of Israel. And we're going to even see that God himself remembers the Amalekites and has a very long memory. And in fact, some of the things that the Amalekites had done generations ago, they're going to pay for tonight. Um, The Amalekites are from a grandson of Esau. Um, We see that back in Genesis 36, uh, 12. We won't read all of that right now. But but essentially, uh, the Amalekites are really going to pay for the things that they've done to Israel. Now, now that Israel has a king, God is going to go squarely after the Amalekites, and He's going to direct uh, the king, the, the king of Israel, to do just that. Somebody, look at, uh, read out loud, First Samuel fifteen one to three. There in your verse list. So, you remember this God mentioned something that the Amalekites did to the nation of Israel and he says look uh, you need to go after them for what they have done and Saul's going to go and actually destroy, he's supposed to go and destroy the Amalekites but the irony is that the destruction of the amount that's not the right one, the destruction of the I don't know what's going on here the destruction of the Amalekites is going to contribute to Saul's undoing himself. This is going to be the, 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 the disobedient step that Saul makes that's going to rip the kingdom from him. Not just from his, his line, but from him. And God's going to take it away and use this event as reason to give it to David. Now, there's a command that we see in this passage that we, that we just read. Um, there is a command to listen to the voice of the Lord. Um, Samuel tells him, um, now therefore, in verse 1, at the end of verse 1, now therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. It's a command. Listen. Listen. Now you need to know, as you read through chapter 15, you can make a note of this out to the side if you want to um, for your edification later when you read through chapter 15. But the words hear, listen, and obey are all the same word in Hebrew, or at least in this chapter. They're all used in the same way. And so there's going to be some wordplay that the author uses going through chapter 15 to clue you in on exactly how evil the, what Saul actually does really is. So he's not only supposed to listen to the voice of the Lord, he is supposed to strike down the Amalekites and he is supposed to devote to destruction all of the Amalekites. Now what is he supposed to leave of the Amalekites? Not a thing. Everything is supposed to be devoted to destruction. And we talked about this back when Joshua and The children of Israel marching through and they go through this process we called Harim or God calls Harim where he basically uh, they annihilate everyone they burn everyone to the ground now the Amalekites are supposed to be devoted to destruction why why does Samuel say they're supposed to be devoted to destruction something that they did to Israel does anybody remember what they did to Israel they attacked them. Okay, yes, they didn't let him pass. They attacked him. Let's read it. Uh, Exodus seventeen eight through 16. Who will read that for me? Like That's eight verses.
1: Then Amalek <laughs> came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek, while Moses up on top of the uh, went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand Israel prevailed and whenever he lowered his hand Amalek prevailed. But Moses's hands grew weary so that they took a stone and put it under him and he sat on it while Aaron and Hur held up his hands one on one side and the other on the other side so his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it The Lord is my banner, saying A hand upon the throne of the Lord, the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation.
0: So we have this uh you remember this story? This is a very famous story of Moses having his hands up he- held up and and all this while they fought. Um, but it seems like a relatively straightforward uh battle uh, it, you know, there was a lot of people that tried to wage war with Israel over the years and it doesn't seem to cause this much of a stir and it seems strange at least when you read the Exodus text that Amalek would be called out by Moses even right there in the end of the text that from generation to generation the Lord is going to go after Amalek. Now, we don't actually get any more clarity on that scene until Moses brings it up later in the book of Deuteronomy. So look at Deuteronomy 25, the last passage there, 25, 17 to 19. Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt, how he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and cut off your tail, those who were lagging behind you, and he did not fear God. Therefore, when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your enemies around you, In the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget. So it seems that Amalek's strategy for attacking Israel was to attack him from behind, like a coward, essentially, and cut off his tail, meaning all the little ones that were straggling behind and were at the back of the line to hit them first and kill them. And so it seems that this is the reason that Moses and the Israelites go to war with Amalek. And this is the reason that God remembers what Amalek did. And now that Saul is established as king and has established himself as leader over the people and has begun this sort of military campaign, now is the time where we're going to blot Amalek out from the face of the earth. And so God sends Saul after the Amalekites. All right, questions about that so far? Good. How, how Go long is this from, uh, from now and from back when he said he was going to white uh, cloud? Roughly 400 years. So Saul is 1051 to 1011. Um, this is, the, the Exodus is 14 46 to 42 years from then, probably. So, what is that? 1404, roughly? Somewhere around there? Go ahead. So the, Amalekites in the, southwest. the Amalekites are... Let's go back to the map. i got to think now. Amalekites are in the north, I believe. Just in the north, northern part of the land of Israel. They're in the land of Israel at this moment. Okay. So they're going after them there. In the land, I believe. i got to think about it for a second. I may come up with a different answer in a minute. But uh, I believe that's where they're at now. Because they're, they're um, in the passage, the geography is listed. I just can't, I can't remember off the top of my head. Uh, lay away in the valley, can I, uh, I believe they're in the land at this moment, Blake, to be honest with you. But I, I, I can't remember. I can't recall off the top of my head. Say again. Yeah, phone a friend. I need need a phone a friend at this moment. It'll probably come to me at about midnight tonight, and I'll text you. Uh, <laughs> that's okay. That's okay. <laughs> uh, all right. So, um, so Saul's called to devote him to destruction. Well, what does he do? He goes. He goes up to uh, lay wait for them. Uh, gets how, how many men does he have now? That's two hundred ten thousand men. All right, 200,000 from him, 200, uh, 10,000 from the tribe of Judah, they all go and they're laying wait uh, for the Amalekites before they strike them dead. And in the process, they warn a group called the Kenites who have kind of associated with the Amalekites. They've sort of been absorbed into the Amalekites, but they are a different tribe of people. But they warn the Kenites. And why do they warn the Kenites? Well, because the Kenites are descendants of Moses's father, father-in-law. So Moses' father-in-law, their descendants from him, and they had in the past at around the same time been kind to the people of Israel. And so the people of Israel are basically repaying the Kenites by telling them, hey, we're about to strike these people dead, and if you don't want to be caught up in that, you need to leave. And so the Kenites are like, Okay, see ya. <laughs> they're gone. Um, like most people would, they're, they're gone. And so Saul moves in, and he strikes them all dead. And he takes the women and children, and he burns them to the ground. Men, women, and children, actually, and burns them to the ground. All's well, right? Doesn't he, didn't he follow the command? No, he didn't. Um, he actually spared the king, Agag, which is a great name. Uh, <laughs> he spared Agag. He also spared the best sheep, the best oxen, the fattened calves, and all that was good. In fact, what he devoted to destruction were all the worthless things. Look at First uh, Samuel fifteen seven and nine. Somebody read that out loud. Now, answer me this. What is the reason, what is the devoting to destruction? What is that? The things that go up in fire. Why does he want them all burned? What are they devoting them to? To what? Yeah, the, the judgment, right? Um, the, what we talked about when Joshua was moving through the land is that the Lord is basically telling them These people are so evil. What they have done before me is so evil that the only way they can actually come to judgment is not by your hands, but you need to bring them before me. You need to bring their souls before me. That is the only way justice can actually be had in this situation with this group. That's essentially what Kareem really is. All of them need to be brought before me, all of their people, to the ground, and anything they've touched, their sheep, their oxen, everything, all of it's worthless, burn it to the ground, okay, because, go ahead. Um, burning uh, a body is seen as uh, the worst way to die. So, a burial is a proper death for someone. Uh, burning their body is the pagan's way. Does that make sense? Um, so this gets in a long discussion about cremation and all kinds of other things, but, uh, but, but, uh, but it, it's, it, only pagans have burned bodies. And so they're pagans and they're being given a pagan's death, essentially. And it's the worst form of death that can possibly be had, yeah. yeah I mean, yeah, it is, essentially. It's effectively the same thing. Everything is consumed. It's all lifted up to him in smoke. It's all his. Not, and so the idea of burning, it's like not one ounce of the person is left. There's no body to bury in the ground. It's all gone. Uh, there's also the addition of that is like it's the most economic and easy way to do it, <laughs> you know, for you to kill a, a whole massive group of people. That's really sadistic, and I'm sorry to say that, but say it that way. But that, that's the reality of it, Right? There's a lot of, there's multiple levels to it. But yeah, it's a pagan's death. It's an offering to the Lord. And the Lord is saying in Harim, this is mine. Everything is mine. So what is Saul doing? By not giving it to him. Robbing God of his offering. Robbing God of what's rightfully his. He's actually stealing from the Lord. But the irony is, why do you think he takes the fattened lambs? And fattened calves and the good animals. Why do you think he's doing that? He actually tells you in this chapter that he's doing it so that he can offer it up to the Lord. So that they can be their sin offerings and their, all those kinds of offerings. Op- well, the utter stupidity of that, if you just stop and think about it, the Lord has told you what kind of offering he wants and it's in this form. I want you to go in and kill everybody and then burn them all to the ground. But Saul has this way of disobeying the Lord in the most righteous way possible. <laughs> it, disobeying the Lord and then calling it righteousness. And by the way, he knows what he's done is wrong. He knows what he's done is wrong. And I'll show it to you in just a second. Go ahead. You were going to ask a question. formulate our own righteousness over here and God's like, no, this is, this is righteousness and I want you to do this and it, we make it look like we're pious and we're not, we're disobedient. This is exactly what Saul is, is struggling with, Timothy. Yes. 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 He, he has, remember Achan, same, same deal. Achan steals. Achan is then devoted to destruction. Why does Saul lose his kingdom? Now, not just his not just his progeny, not just his kids. Why does he lose his kingdom? He's about to right now. Why? Because he's associated himself with banned things. Right. So you're banned from the kingdom. Now it's going to take years for him to kind of untangle all of this, all of Israel from Saul. But uh, he's going to start the process near immediately. Um, so get into this just a little bit further. So he spares Agag, and um, we've seen that. Now Samuel comes into the picture. Samuel comes up to the camp at Gilgal, and he hears the voice of the sheep and oxen that are bleeding nearby. Now, I want to to just walk you through this. Uh, There's several verses here, verses, and you can notate these if you want to out to the side, but Verse 1, 14, 19, 20, 22, and 24. 1, 14, 19, 20, 22, and 24. This idea of hearing, listening, obeying comes up over and over and over again in all of these verses. Look at this. Verse 1, Samuel said to Saul, the Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Verse 14. And Samuel said, What then is this bleating of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? Because this is what happens in the story is that Saul has done this and as soon as Samuel walks up, he greets Samuel by saying, Hey, what's happening? I've obeyed the word of the Lord. But this is, the picture here is like the kid, when the mom comes home and the kid knows that they've done something wrong and the, mom, the kid comes to the mom and says, uh, you are looking so beautiful today. Have I told you lately? Let me get you your cup of coffee. Here, sit down in your favorite chair, prop your feet up. How can I serve you, right? Knowing that in the background there is this, uh, something very bad that's gone wrong. And he says that, look at, uh, look at verse 12, actually verse 11. I regret this is the Lord talking to Samuel I regret that I have made Saul king for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments and Samuel was angry and he cried to the Lord all night and Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning and it was told uh, and it was told Samuel Saul came to Carmel and behold he set up a monument for himself and turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal and Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And then Samuel says, Then what's this I hear in my ears? So first Saul is commanded, Listen to the voice of the Lord. Samuel then says, What I'm hearing is not you listening to the voice of the Lord. I'm hearing a bunch of sheep that don't belong to you that are bleeding in the distance. Um, Verse 19. uh, Verse 19 It says, why then did you not obey, same same word there, the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And, Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed, same word again, the voice of the Lord. I did listen to the voice of the Lord. I've gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I've brought Agag, the king of the Amalekites, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. Now, he kind of slipped it in there, right? All right, but then verse uh, 22. Um, and Samuel said, has the Lord as uh, as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifice as in Obeying, same word there, the voice of the Lord. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. In verse 24, Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. The question in this entire chapter is, is, Saul, whose voice are you going to listen to? Whose voice are you going to obey? And for Saul, this is his own undoing. For the life of him, he cannot listen to, he cannot obey the voice of what God has actually commanded him. In the heat of battle, in the moment, the voice who's nearest to him at the time is the one that sounds the most right. Period. And he quickly forgets. We saw this at Gilgal before, where he was told, wait for me there seven days. Yet as his people begin to leave, in the heat of that moment, he makes a bad decision, even though he knows what is wrong. And here he absolutely knows what he was supposed to do. Some, Samuel continues to drill in on this point, And finally, he confesses, you're right. I have listened uh, to the voice of the people around me. That's the one that I wanted to obey at the time. Now, what's the further irony here? It's evident that Saul wanted to uh, use these animals for sacrifice. It sounded right. Uh, it sounds like that's what you're supposed to do. Is use them for sacrifice. And he confesses that he sinned by listening to the voice of the people. Um, and he's begging for pardon from sin. We get this. Uh, seen and and it it can probably confuse you, actually let me come back to that in a moment because let me get through the rest of this uh, these blanks and then we'll come back to this if there's time Um, as far as the king goes and as far as what he's supposed to execute for uh, on behalf of God to extend the kingdom uh, as it were the king was to be an achiever and maintainer of order under God he's supposed to keep things orderly And he's supposed to achieve the driving out of the enemy. But how does he do that? He does it by listening to the voice of God. That's how he does it. Not by any other means, but by listening to the voice of God. And here Saul is the one who is, he might be achieving uh, a lot on the battlefield. But at the end of the day, he's still refusing to listen to the voice of the Lord. Um... Uh, so he has not failed um, in, on the battlefield, but he's failed in respect to listening to the voice of the Lord. Um, and what, what's happening here is that we saw this at Gilgal, where he tries to set up an offering, and uh, he tries to make a sacrifice. And it, what, what what's, it seems to be the case, and that many people have pointed out, is that he's kind of acting like what falls in line with pagan kingship which the pagan kings in the lands around would act like their prophet, their priest, and their king, where he would take the sacrifice and give it to the Lord. And the Lord has given Samuel to the land to be able to do that. He has not given that office to Saul and, and has explicitly told him, this is how you're supposed to act and giving him instructions every, every which way. And yet when he gets into the land, when he gets into battle, when he conquers them, he refuses to listen to the voice of the Lord and he thinks that his way is better. So he offers sacrifices and here it seems that he plans to offer sacrifices. Still acting like the priest, essentially usurping not only the Lord and his offering, but also usurping Samuel and his office. Um, now there's this concept that comes up in uh, 1 Samuel so if you look back there, if you have your Bibles, uh, God says to Samuel, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. But then, go forward to 29, and this is Samuel. Samuel is tearing the kingdom away from Saul. In fact, there's this scene here where uh, Saul, uh, Saul is requesting for repentance, pardon from his sin, and he grabs Samuel's, the hem of his garment as he's walking away, and it tears, and he, Saul, uh, Samuel says, so God will tear the kingdom away from you. And he takes a sword, and he, take, he brings Agag out in front of him, and Samuel just hacks Agag to bits right there in front of everybody, kills him. And he says, Samuel says this to Saul in verse 29, And also the glory of Israel, that is God, the name He gives to the Lord, the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. And then verse 35, it says, And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. But Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. So you get this question, wait, the Lord said He regretted, then Samuel said he doesn't regret. He's not a man that he should have regret. And then later he said, well, he regretted. Now, is this a contradiction? Or perhaps does the author of 1 Samuel remember the words that he wrote, not 15 verses ago, and is actually saying something really important here? Which is it? Does the Lord regret or does he not regret? Well, if you read 1 Samuel 15, you have to come away with the answer, yes. Yes. Right? What other answer can you come up with? Except, yeah. It seems probably what's, what he's saying here is he doesn't have regret. Like a man has regret. He doesn't have regret because he didn't know what was going to happen. And oh, Saul didn't obey his commands. And now God's learning, oh man, what am I going to do now? Golly, I totally regret this decision. Now he doesn't regret like that. But what does sin do? Even though he knows that is what is going to happen. Even though he knows this is how Saul is going to respond. Even though he knows the heart of Saul and he knows all the decisions he's going to make. Even though he knows all those things, what does sin actually do to the heart of God? It grieves him. It grieves Samuel. He's grief stricken over it. The fact that, that Saul cannot obey. So there is a grief, clearly, even though the Lord knows what's going to happen. Uh, I think this is true even in the death of Christ. Peter tells us, oh, you killed Jesus. He tells him in Acts, his first servant. You killed him. But it was according to his plan and foreknowledge. So he planned it, and he knew it. But you still killed him. You think that grieved the Lord? The death of his son? I think so. I think it did. So there's still grief. So he's demonstrating both the emotions of God. Also, when I say grief, don't think about grief like a man is grieved. That's not the same kind of grief. Uh, It's a grief fully knowing and fully understanding what's about to take place and intending it. Um... But the real question that I think this is dealing with and the real point that this brings home is the listening to the voice of the Lord. There is a lot of people in our society today that will tell you they hear the voice of the Lord. And so they'll tell you, I sat there in my living room, closed my eyes, and I listened to the voice of the Lord. And the Lord just told me we need to be really, really careful about that. The Lord has given to us His voice, and it's right here. The best way I've heard it described is if you want to hear the Lord speaking out loud, read the Bible out loud. So, then the question for us, the New Testament community, who have 66 books bound in leather and hardback and all kinds of different forms and got probably 15 in our house. 454 translations. Is that English alone? English alone. Do we listen to the voice of the Lord? When I'm asking about listening to the voice of the Lord, I am not wanting you to go home and close your eyes and just... just Sit there in your thoughts until the Lord... I'm not asking you to do that. In fact, I do not want you to do that. I want you to read this. I want you to read this. This is the voice of the Lord. Now, the question is, can you obey it? Because just like Saul, and just like Jen pointed out a minute ago, just like Saul, our temptation is to read the things that are in here and then go about our own way and operate under our own wisdom. Because, as it turns out, when it comes to actually obeying the words that are in the scriptures, it's really difficult. Go ahead, Timothy. You know, there's, I think there's also uh, no merit to counsel that we would give even to others that's not grounded in Scripture. Um, if the things that you're saying, the things that you're doing, the ways we operate as a church, how, how we operate as individual Christians outside these walls, if they're not coming from the text of Scripture, I don't care how difficult it is to correct it needs to be corrected because it's sin otherwise. And so it, there are things that we point out in Scripture. We say, well, it, right there, what we're doing is blatant disregard for his word. And we go, well, so what? I've always done it that way. I think we'll see that even this Sunday when Jesus encounters the Pharisees from Jerusalem. His, his tradition often trumps the the Word of God. And the more you look for it in your life, the more you'll see it. But yeah, as it comes, as it comes out, it, it's really difficult to obey the Scriptures and what they're teaching us and to really study and, and listen for the voice of the Lord, not in a meditative way, but in a uh, studying the Word of God, listening to His voice that way. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word written in front of us, black and white. That we may read it, study it, understand it, know it. I pray that it would penetrate our hearts, that it would change us from the inside out. We know that what's inside us defiles us. And we pray that your word would transform our hearts, our minds, our attitudes, our character, the very way we respond to people, the way we act, in this world, will all be transformed by the renewing of our minds through through your Word. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.